Good morning. How's everybody doing? Happy Thanksgiving to everybody. Uh, I love this time of year to <coughs> to be able to um, stop and reflect on on so many things, be able to spend time together as family, to be able to just slow down a minute. I think that so often the thing I'm most thankful for is very shallow. Um, it's time off work to be able to just stop for a minute. But I'm so thankful for this time of year, and I'm so thankful that this morning everyone has joined us today um, here this morning as we talk through an amazing truth in Scripture. Uh, if you were here with us as a visitor, we are teaching through the book of John, and we've been in John now for about a year. And we uh, last week taught on the woman that was caught in adultery. And those of you that were here with us know that we talked about how this was not part of the original text of the book of John. We don't question its historicity. We don't question the message of it. We don't question anything other than its location. And this is the location that it landed. Now, the reason that I bring that back up this week is because in order to understand the context of where we're going to be this week, we have to almost put our hand over that story for just a minute. And we need to remember that this is going to connect back to the previous section in chapter 7. And if you remember chapter 7, the setting is at the Feast of Sukkot. And so to understand today's message, as far as setting goes, we need to make sure that we turn back to Sukkot, and this is going to continue on with those teachings of Sukkot. Now, today in our teaching in chapter 8, um, we're going to see a story that's going to show the ignorance and the rejection that blindness and darkness and death brings into our life. And we're going to see that Jesus is going to go even further in discussing who he is. This question has come up over, and it'll come up again in our text. Who are you? And Jesus has been answering it by giving revelations as to who he is. And the revelations that we're going to see today are Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is the life of the world. And light and life are only experienced through the Son of Man being lifted up on our behalf. So as we dig into this, let's go to the Lord one more time in prayer and ask him to bless his time. Lord, I thank you so much for your word. Lord, I ask this morning that you remove me and that your Holy Spirit be our teacher and our instructor. Lord, uh, allow us to stay true to your word. Allow your Holy Spirit to not just instruct us, um, so that we can learn more. But Lord, allow our hearts to be open for instruction to live a holy and righteous life as submitted to you. Lord, I thank you for the truth in this text, and I ask that you speak to us through it. In Jesus' name, amen. So starting with verse 12, it says, Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so we see Jesus saying, I am the light of the world. This is actually one of the famous I am's that we find in the book of John. There are seven of these that uh, people go back and point to uh, of Jesus making proclamations as to who he is. We saw in chapter six that Jesus said, I am the bread of life, saying that as bread sustains physical life, so Christ offers and sustains our spiritual life. Today we're going to see, I am the light of the world. So to a world of darkness, Christ offers himself as guide. And then as we continue to work through the book of John, we, we're going to see, I'm the door of the sheep. I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the way, the truth, the life. And I am the true vine. Now, as we work through these and as we work through the book of John, I know that we keep pointing back to this, but it's so important to make sure that we hold on to it because we can't understand what a passage is saying unless we understand the purpose of the passage, right? 
And we need to remember that in John, he gives us the purpose of why he's recorded the things that he's recorded. In John, he gives us the purpose of why he writes. His purpose is so that you may know that Jesus is the Son of God and that through believing, you may have life in his name. And so everything that we look at is for this purpose of understanding these two things. One is that Jesus is the Son of God, and that it's not just a belief. It's not just something that, oh, okay, we can intellectualize and we understand the concept of, but that it brings something, and it brings this theme of life that we see over and over through Scripture. And so understand the purpose is to point to Jesus being the Son of God and to bring us to a place of life. Now, John also does something else. He seems to write in the same manner throughout the text. John likes to introduce something, and then he'll come back later, introduce it again, and he adds a piece to it. And then he introduces it again, and he adds a piece to it. And so though the prologue was probably written at the end of the, uh, once the book of John was completion, to go back and say, hey, these are the ideas that are going to be hit on. Understand that that prologue gives us basically this thesis statement of the paper. These are the things that we're going to hit on. These are the things we're going to talk about. So when we see light and life, those of us that have been here through the entire study of the book of John, that should ring bells in our mind, right? Go back to chapter 1, verse 4. It says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 9 says, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. And and so, just like I said before, we have this idea introduced. We talked about that. We talked about what that meant. But today, there's going to be this peace added to it. There's going to be this further understanding that's going to be revealed to us, and it's going to actually be revealed by the setting. Now, if verse 12 tells us that Jesus comes to bring light and bring life, what does that speak about our current state? Our current state is we need light. Our current state is we need life. And so we need to understand before we get into this that our current state is darkness and death. If Jesus comes to bring light and life, it means we're absent of those things and we need those things and he is the source of those things. Now when we look through scripture, we see that darkness is always described in the Old Testament as this place of like the absence of the word of God. When we look in the Old Testament in places like Micah 3.6, it says, Therefore it shall be night to you without vision and darkness. The sun will go down on the prophets and the day shall be black over them. So there was this day coming that darkness was going to fall, that God was going to stop revealing things to them as a nation. And this is the intertestament time, right, if we understand the history of what's going on here. Isaiah 8.22, all the way through chapter 10, speaks of a time of darkness, but light will be brought. So there's going to be this time where everything goes dark, but light will be introduced, and we know that that light is what we're talking about today. Remember, we, we go dark all the way from the end of the Old Testament, all the way up to the New Testament, the entrance of John the Baptist onto the scene. There's darkness for centuries. And now we see the light of the world on the scene. Now we see the light. Now we see Jesus. 
And, and it's important that we understand the concept of darkness because if we're teaching on light and we're teaching on life, we need to understand what darkness is and what death is. You really only appreciate light when you've been in the dark, right? When you understand darkness. It's like we take for granted that we can walk by and flip this switch and light's going to come on. I I don't know how many of you would admit this. Um, I never mind admitting things that embarrass most people. I don't know if that's a gift or a curse. Um, But the last time the lights went off in the house, and I'm notorious for this. I do it all the time. I will walk into a room. Oh, I can't see. Flip. Nothing happened. Oh, yeah, the power's out. I'll still walk by and hit the switch. Why? Because I need light in that room. I know it's not going to come on. I just left the living room, and we're sitting there with candles. But I need light. I need direction. I need to see what I'm doing. And that is the thing that's going to help us understand what Jesus comes to bring is understanding what we are without. We're without light. We're without being able to see. We're without direction. We're without hope. And if we understand that, that lets us know the amazing gift that Jesus brings to us. Now, Jesus makes this claim of light, and he causes the thing that he causes most often, a complete meltdown of the religious elite, right? I mean, we see him make these proclamations, and it's like people running around with their hair on fire after he says these things because they're like, oh, you can't say that. Oh, no, you can't do that. And Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. And the question is, why on earth would that send them into this tailspin? Why on earth would it make them so adamantly and crazy reject this claim? Well, the reason why is because when we look back in the Old Testament in places like Isaiah 9-2, Malachi 4-2, we see that the promised Messiah would be a light to the world. And so when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, they're saying, whoa, 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 you're claiming to be the Messiah then. You're claiming to be the Messiah. You, no, you can't do that. You're not the Messiah we were looking for. You're not the type of person we were looking for. You can't possibly be the Messiah. Oh, but then there's more to this. Because in Psalm 119, in Proverbs 6, the word of God is described as light. So, oh, this guy's claiming to be the Messiah. Okay, now he's claiming to be the word of God. But that's still not all. We look further. Jesus is equating himself with God in this statement. Psalm 27, 1, the Lord is, a light, is the light of my salvation. Isaiah 60, Malachi 7. So the reason that they are in total meltdown mode is because this guy that doesn't look like Messiah is supposed to, doesn't act like Messiah is supposed to according to their standard, doesn't meet, all, uh, meet any of their criteria, he's saying, I'm Messiah, I'm the Word, I am God. And they are not <laughs> excited about this statement. But what's astounding about this is that the whole time, what's been the whole problem? Who are you? And Jesus is like, okay, <laughs> look me in the face. Let's try this again. Because through the whole book of John, we see Jesus saying who he is. He's revealing who he is. But all that they hear is heresy because they can't see Jesus for who he is. He doesn't meet their presuppositions of who Messiah is. Verse 13 says, So the Pharisees said to him, You're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. 
For it's not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it's written that the testimony of two people is true. I'm the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. So what's happening here is interesting. Jesus makes a statement, and the Pharisees go to the law to condemn Jesus and defend their perspective. There's a ton of irony in this, considering Jesus is the standard by which all things are measured. He is the law. He is the word. But they go to the law to try to defend why what Jesus is saying is bothering them. And this is their MO, right? Think about it. The healing of the paralytic. He shows up, miraculously healed. Instead of, hey, that's amazing. God has done something awesome. All right. Who healed on the Sabbath? That's breaking the law. It's cool that this guy has been down there paralyzed, can't walk, and now he's walking up with his mat. We're going to ignore that for just a minute. Why? Because he's a lawbreaker, and then who's going to heal on the Sabbath? And Jesus basically says the Tommy Hinton paraphrase version. God can heal on the Sabbath. Well, yeah, I, I'm God. I'm Lord of the Sabbath. That's why. <laughs> no, you're not. It, it's this over and over thing. And then last week, even though it doesn't fit in chronology, the message still fits, right? We're going to trap Jesus. It's a trap, Star Wars fans. Um, but they're going to trap Jesus. And what are they going to do? They're going to use the law. They're going to come to Jesus and say, <laughs> all right. We caught this woman in adultery. The law says that we should stone her. Now what should we do? Jesus knows the law didn't say that. The law says bring both of them and stone. They keep trying to catch him in the law, and they keep failing. It's like they're gluttons for punishment. So the law is always a part of their argument, but they're arguing the law in front of the judge. They're saying, no, this is what the law says, and the judge says, no, 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 I know what the law says. Why? Well, <laughs> I wrote it. I'm the standard. And they keep trying, and they keep failing. They can't see the truth of who Jesus is. No matter how many times he answers, this is who I am. They just can't see it. Jesus in this passage also tells them where he comes from. <clears throat> where is this man from? He tells, says where he comes from. He comes from the Father. Uh, but they continue to judge by the flesh. They think they're judging by the standard of the law, but they're really not. They're judging by the standard of the flesh. Why? Because they look at this and say, well, you have to have a second witness. Jesus says, I do. It's the Father. I, 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 and you guys, you guys, the Pharisees, they would be the ones to claim to know the Father, right? They would be the ones to claim to know the will of God, right? They would be the ones to have the Old Testament memorized, know the law, and adhere to the law, and understand who God is. But yet, Jesus is saying, look, <clears throat> you don't even know the Father. And, and so understand the reason that you don't know me is because you don't know the Father. The reason you don't know the Father is because you don't know me, and we're going to double back to that in just a minute. But let's take this instance of judging here in verse 16 for a second. It says, you judge, for 15 and 16, sorry, you judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. Yet, even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it's not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. This looks complicated, right? Like, we look at this verse and we're not super happy about this verse because it's like, I'm not going to judge, but even if I do. And, and this also seems like a contradiction, right? You guys remember in John 5, 22? It says, for the Father judges no one, 
but has given all judgment to the Son. And so we know that Jesus does judge. And so looking at this passage, is this a contradiction? Is something going on weird here? What's happening? Notice exactly what's being said here. It says, you judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. It ends. Well, if he's saying you judge according to the flesh, I judge no one, what is the context of the statement? I judge no one according to the flesh. I judge no one in the way that you judge. I I judge differently. It says that even if I do judge, when I do judge, then my judgment is true. And why is it true? Because it's from the Father. And so their judgment is based on the conclusion that they've already come to. And Jesus' judgment is always going to be true. This is a kangaroo court happening here. They came to the conclusion before they heard the evidence, and now the evidence must support their conclusion. That's the problem. This is not the Son of God. Why is this not the Son of God? I don't know yet. Let's see what he says. Oh, see, okay, there. This is what he actually meant by that. Okay, go again. And, And so it's this idea. He's guilty because he's guilty. He's wrong because... He's wrong. It has no foundation in truth. It has everything to do with their assumption of who Jesus is, which is terribly wrong. Verse 26 even will go on and show his intention to judge. I have much to say about you and much to judge. But he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world that I have heard from him. And so his judgment and his testimony here are connected. Why is his judgment true? Because it's from God. Why is his testimony true? Because it's from God. He has testified, and they're totally missing it. They got nothing. And it's like Jesus says, now back to your law, back to your judgment. You say the testimony of two people is true? I have two people. I have myself and the Father, but the reason that you don't even know what's going on here is because you don't even recognize my second witness. You, as those who submit your life to God, don't actually know him. You who submit yourself to (laughs) obeying this law and all of these protections you put around the law, you say that you do this to worship God, but you don't even know him. You don't understand what's happening here. And in verse 19, the Pharisees prove this. Jesus makes this statement, and they come and ask a question, and yet their question proves exactly what Jesus is saying. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? And Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. They're question, questioning, where's your father? We need to get his testimony too. Now, where's he at? We need to go and question him. As a matter of fact, one commentator says the thought is this. We haven't seen him. We haven't gotten his evidence. Where is he? We must question him. And Jesus again is saying, that's exactly the point. You don't know my father. You you don't know this because you don't recognize me. Verse 20. It says, these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Now, the hour had not yet come part, we're not going to go back and talk about that again. Remember, we explored that as we were working through John 2 and also in John 7. But there is something new introduced here that we do need to pay very close attention to, and it's setting. (coughs) It's the setting of the statement. It says, these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught 
in the temple. Now remember at the beginning, I told you that we needed to remember that this is connected to the Feast of Sukkot, right? And so that is what we need to have in our mind as we look at this teaching. Exodus 13, 21 and 22 says this, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud stood by day, and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Now, remember, the Feast of Sukkot is the remembering of this event in the Exodus. It's this event of the children of Israel being provided for in the wilderness. And we already know from chapter 7 that there's this water pouring ceremony to remember the provision of water. It also is a picture of God providing now for the harvest. Um, But there is also a torch lighting ceremony as part of Sukkot. On the very first night of the feast, they go into this place next to the treasury, the court of women, the setting of this story. And they light these huge flames. These candelabras are so bright, as a matter of fact, one writer said that there's not a whole, there's not a court in all of Jerusalem that's not lit by the light of these fires. So super bright light. And what is it there to represent? It's there to represent God leading Israel in their time in the wilderness. That you look up and you see this as a picture. You see the light. It reminds you of this. It's written that people would go and dance and celebrate and sing before these pillars of light. As a matter of fact, there's one writer that records that the most pious of people would try to not sleep during Sukkot. Why? Because then they could party all night. Who says the Bible's not a fun book? And and so they could party all night in front of the light. They could celebrate before God. They could be excited about his leading in the wilderness, and they celebrate this. And then when we end the chapter 7, what do we end with? It says, on the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus makes this proclamation, the water pouring ceremony. And then it says, the next time he spoke with them, that's what we're hearing today. Watch this. There's a whole week of celebration symbolizing the provision of God. Water, light, they're celebrating. They're so happy. We get to the end of the feast, the last day. It's winding down. Everything's over. Some commentators would say that this was that night um, when the flames were out for the very first time. Some would say that they're still burning. Some would say this is connected, but either way, it's connected. So watch this. All week they had been celebrating this representation of light. And then the true light is standing in that same spot right in front of their face saying, I'm the fulfillment of this. And instead of celebration and joy, there's rejection, hatred, animosity. You can't be him. The weight of that, guys. The weight of, they were caught in their religiosity. They were caught in their ceremony. They were excited about this celebration. And then right here in front of them, the true light of God, the true representative of God, the thing that's going to bring light and life and provision is standing in front of their face. And they look at it with scowls and hatred in their heart and just can't handle the fact that he doesn't look like he's supposed to, so he can't possibly be him. Verse 21, so he said to them again, I'm going away and you'll seek me and you'll die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says where I'm going, you cannot come. 
He said to them, you are from below, I'm from above, you're of this world, I'm not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world that I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. This they will seek him and not find him is interesting to me. It's very interesting. Why? Jesus is going to hide himself. They're going to finally come around and seek Jesus. Nope, you can't find me. It's a big magical spiritual game of hide and seek. No, that's not what this is saying. What this is saying is that these people... They're seeking life. They're seeking the things that only Jesus can bring. They're they're seeking the kingdom. They're seeking these things, but they're seeking them outside of Christ. And guess what? You're never going to find them outside of Christ. It's impossible. See, this is a direct contrast with 8.12. 8.12 says the light comes to bring life. And in this part, it says that you will die in your sins. There's darkness. And so this is the other side of that. That on one side, you see the light, and on the other side, you live in darkness. One brings life. One brings death in your sins through unbelief. One commentator says that Jesus is in a lawsuit with the world. God has and is testifying to the person of Jesus. And instead of believing the testimony and being on the side of God... The Pharisees are rejecting the testimony and landing on the side of death. Another commentator says, Jesus is the representative of God's people binding themselves to the Father. The accepting of Jesus is the accepting of the Father, and the rejection of Jesus is the rejection of the Father. And so again, this question reigns so heavy. Who are you? Jesus' response, I'm who I have told you I am from the beginning. They still don't get it. They're rejecting God. They're rejecting Jesus. They don't know the Father because they do not know the Son. But I think there's a beautiful picture here. In their unbelief, Jesus is still confronting them with the truth. I love that. They've rejected him, right? They're pushing, every time he says something, no, no, no. And Jesus continues to proclaim the truth. Like I've said before, uh, if you were here, you'll remember that um, from a few months ago now. I said that so often in my life, I always saw these interactions between Jesus and the Pharisees being like Jesus is just setting them up. Yeah, keep going, keep going. I'm going to smack you down now. I'm going to smite you. You've been smoting. Um, that, that's kind of, yeah, that's right, Milano, what you going to do? Um, and so, like, I've always thought that this was what Jesus was doing here. And the more that I study the word, the more I see the compassion that comes through the continual telling of the truth. The truth is there. The Bible says that the heavens declare the glory of the Lord so that no man is with excuse, that God has been made plain to us through his creation, that even us today in our rejection, God continues to pour the truth into our life. This morning, if you are not a Christ follower and you've rejected him, the truth is being poured into your life. The same thing over and over. God continues 
to reveal himself. How much love does that show? In our life, if somebody rejects us, if someone pushes us away, we're like, well, okay, that's fine with me. But then the love, compassion, and mercy of Jesus, the gospel, continues to be taught. It is our rejection that pulls us away from it. Verse 28. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. For I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed. See, it it just didn't matter to the Pharisee who the sender of Christ was. It, it, It didn't matter that the sender was true. It didn't matter that the sender was God. It didn't matter that Jesus could trace his message to God. It it just didn't matter. When we look at this phrase, when you lift up. When you lift up, it's really interesting because it says when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. We may read this at first and say, wait a minute, is this saying that all of the Pharisees are going to believe when Jesus is crucified? Well, did that happen? No, it it didn't, so that that can't be what's going on here. Um, Oh, I know, maybe it's after he's laid in the tomb and three days later he's risen again. All of the religious elite, all the Jews will believe, all the Pharisees will believe. Is that what's saying here? Did that happen? No, that didn't happen either. What is this verse saying? For me, remember when I always say for me, in my opinion, um, you can always throw this away, but it makes perfect sense to me. This is one of those already not yet, God's not in our time things in Scripture. Watch this. When Jesus is lifted up on the cross, he is exalted, he's glorified. He's glorified in death, right? He's going to die on our behalf, on behalf of our sins. He is the substitution for us. Now, when he dies on the cross, understand that there's another part to this. We like to talk about what Jesus died on the cross, so we have salvation through that. That is great, and we must focus on that. That is the gospel, but there's another side to this. He is also judge. When Christ is lifted up on the cross, it is the completion of the perfect life that he lived on earth to show us God to to live in perfection so that he can die on our behalf, a sinless, spotless sacrifice. But on that day, this work is done, and one day we will all stand before him, the perfect judge in judgment, right? Right? What does the Bible say? The Bible says that one day every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And what does that mean? It means that one day, whether you accept Christ or not, track with me here, I'm not teaching heresy, I don't think, you will admit that Jesus is Lord. But here's the question. Will you confess Jesus is Lord in the salvation or will you confess Jesus is Lord in the condemnation? See, that's it right there. There's a day of judgment that these Pharisees, even if they reject their whole life, they will one day proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord. Why is that? Because he was lifted up and glorified. He will be their judge. And so what's being said here is, yes, some will believe. Some will believe in this life. Some will enter into salvation. But you know what? The truth is always the truth, and it will reveal itself. There will be a day that every single 
person and will see the truth, will it be in your judgment and condemnation or will it be in glorification? That's what I see here. That's what I see. It is I see when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. I, I, I can't... I can't get over <laughs> this, this whole message. Why? Because we, we see Jesus proclaiming over and over who he is. We see some still reject, some believe, but he continues to teach. I, I love that still this passage ends with this statement. Many believed. Now, what kind of believers here we're going to talk about over the next chapter. We've talked about their different levels of belief, those that believed and went away. That's going to be coming. But, but I love the fact that the gospel is continuing. The truth is continuing to be taught. Now, we've worked through this. What is our application? What do we take home from this? The first thing that we have to take home from this, the first point of application we have, is that our natural state is darkness and death. See, we're already in darkness. We need light. We're already dead. The, the problem is, is that so many people think that they're a good person. Uh, I'm a good person. Everything's going to be fine. You're not a good person. You're, you're not at all a good person. Everyone has sinned. Everyone has fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. And, and Neil's taught this before, and it needs to be mentioned over and over again. We think of sin as we're standing up as an archer, and we're looking at the target in the back, and we're squinting real hard, and we're trying as hard as we can to hit that target, and we just miss a little bit. That's not the picture that's here. The picture that's here is there's the target of God, and I am aiming at a completely different target. I'm going to fulfill my life in any way that I see fit. I'm going to ignore what God says. That's the state we're in. We are sinners. We aim at a different target. Our unbelief in Christ will leave us in this state of darkness that we're in. There's a problem in this too, though, that, that's really interesting. There are people that realize that they live in darkness. Why, why, why am I not happy? Why, why don't I have any pleasure and joy? Why, why don't I have these things? And what happens is that people start searching for light and life and fulfillment and things that are not Christ. What are you going to do? Well, I'm going to immerse myself in the goal of having this job. and, and this thing. I'm going to find my satisfaction in it. And, and you get there, and you find out that you're still empty. You're still not full. You're still not satisfied. You're still not joyful. Maybe you go and find a, a, a world religion. Maybe you go and find a philosophy, an ideology that says that it can bring you to enlightenment. You ever wonder why they always use that word? It, it, I tell my kids at school all the time when we're talking about world religions, if we're studying the writings of uh, Siddhartha Gautama and Buddhism, maybe we're talking about Hinduism, Islam, any of these things, I always tell them, guys, let's find what makes this a good lie. And what are we looking for? We're looking for the element of truth in it. We're looking for that thing that sounds good. Uh, Kyle even mentioned this in pastor's community this past week that he does this when he goes on mission trips. But, but it's true. 
It's true every single time that when we find a really good lie, there's an element of truth to it. And people look and say, oh, that sounds really good. I'm going to go there. But the problem is, is we get there and we find that we're still without direction. We're still hopeless. We're still empty. There's no comfort in it. There's no satisfaction in it. Why? Because it's not Christ. Kyle said this week that Satan is and uh, disguised as an angel of light. That's what makes him so deceptive. He tells us, hey, light's over here. No, it's not. It's more darkness. It's more misdirection. Christ is your only hope, and without him, you will die in your sins. It's an assured statement. Number two, the second thing that we get from this, there's a cost of discipleship that goes deeper than belief that God exists. I mean, look at the Pharisees. Is there any question in your mind that they believed in God? No. Of course they believed in God. So what's missing? What's the issue here? What, what's the theme? See, all of their devotion to the law, all of their devotion to ceremony, all of their devotion to religiosity did not bring them to a place where they knew God. Of course God exists. Even the demons believe that and shudder. But what is the difference? The difference is believing on Christ. Believing on God. That your entire hope, everything that you have, is hung on who he is. And just saying, well, yeah, there's a God. That's not it. That's not it. Most people in the world believe there is a God. That doesn't mean that most people in the world have seen the light. Those are two different things. Now, we may think that this only happens in the Bible, <clears throat> that people, you know, they think we're okay, but we're not actually okay. In the part of the world that we live in, there's something that goes on that I affectionately call Southern Christianity. I use the word Christianity very lightly in that phrase um, because it's not Christianity at all. What is Southern Christianity? Well, I've, maybe one day I'll write a paper. I don't know. Um, I, I've defined it, as more of a political ideology than anything else. What are you going to do? Well, I'm a conservative Christian. Okay, what does that mean? Well, I mean, at Thanksgiving and at Christmas and at Easter, I'm going to say a prayer before we eat our meal. Man, that's awesome. That's really cool. All right, what else? The, you use the word Christian, so let's keep going. Well, God's real. Okay, that's awesome. Jesus is real too. All right, that's cool. Oh, that was it. Okay, I was, I was waiting for some more. I was <laughs> no, that's it. And understand that just acknowledging that there is a God, just acknowledging that Jesus existed. I'm in the world of history, or world history. That's my job. I tell people about stuff that happened a long time ago. A bunch of dead people. That's all I do. Um, it is, I talk about these things. History doesn't question that Jesus existed. It doesn't. Um, if you'd ever like to explore that more, <laughs> you can have lots of fun going through that with people. Jesus existed. The question is, who is Jesus. And that's the question that he has been trying to answer the whole time. So we're not just called to belief. We're called to discipleship. Remember, those huge candelabras, the light, what do they symbolize? God's presence and you following God in the wilderness. What we are called to is not belief that Jesus existed, but we're, belief to lay, we're called to belief enough to lay down everything and to follow the beacon of light that is Christ. We're called to discipleship. We're called to follow. There's so much in this that, that, that we 
we could just keep going, but we're not. Number three, Jesus calls us from dark to light and from death to life. This is my favorite part. Jesus calls us from dark to light and from death to life. See, this passage has so much condemnation in it. It has so much about unbelief in it. It has so much about you will die in your sins without belief. But I'm thankful of the other side of that coin, that if you have seen the light, if you follow the light, you will receive life. What does that look like? How do I know that I've seen the light? How do I know this? Well, it's the fruit of your life. It's the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Also, are you growing in a desire to follow the Lord? Are you growing in a love for His Word? Are you growing in a love for others? Are you growing in this? See, those things only come as a result of seeing the light and following the light and following the light in the direction that you should go. And, And so I'm so thankful that we are assured life when we follow the light. The fourth thing, Jesus is the fulfillment of Sukkot. I think John goes out of his way to prove this. We've seen that um, John says that, that Jesus is the bread of life. We see that he is the living water. We see that he is the light of the world. And when we look at the Exodus um, account, God provided bread, God provided water, God provided light and direction. And so Jesus is that. Jesus is our only hope for direction in the wilderness. We look to him for everything. We look to him for our provision. Understand this today. We're all in the treasury 2,000 years ago. What are you going to do with the message? What are you going to do with who Christ says he is? What are you going to do? Will you believe that he's the son of God and have life? Will you reject him? Will you die in your sins? Will you die in darkness? Every single time we're confronted with who Jesus is, we're faced with the decision of what to do with it. Will you believe and step into life and light? Will you reject and stay in darkness and death? Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. Lord, I ask that um, you speak to us um, through this week, that you bring back to mind that you are our light, you are our life. Lord, those of us that have experienced the light and the life that comes with it, Lord, I thank you for salvation. Lord, I thank you for guiding. I thank you for direction. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone in this room that has not totally placed their hope on you and have not seen the light, Lord, I pray that today through your spirit you reveal yourself to them, that they latch hold to who you are and they follow the light of direction in this wilderness of life. Lord, thank you for being with us in all that we do. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.